conversations with the biggest names in rock music and pop culture. You're listening to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. The Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. My next guest is the charismatic lead singer of one of the more exciting rock bands of the last 15 years, Idols. The five-piece has been making electrifying music in the post-punk and indie alternative realms and is a breath of fresh air in the world of rock and roll. The group is known for their energetic live shows, fiercely political lyrics, and genre-defying sound. In 2018, Idols won Q Magazine's award for Best Breakthrough Act, and in 2023, they received Grammy nods for Best Rock Album and Best Rock Performance. Their debut album, Brutalism, was released in 2017, a critical acclaim, and they're currently gearing up to release their fifth album, Tang, on February 16th. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Idol's lead singer and frontman, Joe Talbot. You're listening to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Sonos. I have to take a moment to talk to you about my favorite speakers on the planet. First impressions, open up the box some of the sleekest speakers I've ever seen in my life. Sonos has hands down been my favorite speaker brand for years, especially as a touring musician myself. I've used all types of speakers throughout my career, and I gotta tell you, Sonos speakers them all for sound quality and ease of use. I recently got the sound bar and the subwoofer. I plugged it in, super easy to use, and I gotta tell you, my room fills up with sound like no one's business. Lately, I've been using the sound beam for the bedroom TV, It's super easy to connect to. I was able to seamlessly hook it up. It's sleek, it blends right into my space. The Beam Compact Smart Soundbar has the clearest dialogue and such insane bass, especially when hooked up to my extra subwoofer, my homeroom shakes. It literally fills up my bedroom with so much sound. Sonos and the Beam has really changed the way that I watch TV and movies. I have some friends over, I put on the extra subwoofer, really helps to create that intense surround sound. I have to tell you, the design is immaculate. It looks great below my TV in my bedroom and in my living room. My favorite thing about Sonos Home Theater is the fact that it's easy to use. It sets up in just under about 20 minutes or so. The sound is incredible. It looks incredible. And it is one of the best gifts you can buy anyone. Head over to Sonos.com to learn more and find gifts for every listener on your list. You're listening to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. Welcome back to Spin Magazine's Lip Service. I'm sitting with the amazing Joe Talbot from the Idols. How are you, my friend? I'm all right. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it. I saw you guys a couple times, actually. I saw you with the Strokes uh, at a festival in L.A. a couple years back. Amazing show. I just found out that you're playing, like, tomorrow night, which I wish I knew, Mm. in New York. Do you like coming to New York? I love it, yeah. Yeah, it's great. So you're doing, I think you're doing a show at the Bowery Ballroom. There's a new show that was just announced for September here, right? Yeah, we're we're playing with um, the Walkman. Uh, the 27th of September. The Walkman's one of those bands that I'm glad that they're getting there just now because I feel like at the time they had a huge buzz. And, you know, we were talking, I was talking with Albert from The Strokes who was on the show not long ago and going back to the... Did you ever watch Meet Me in the Bathroom? Uh, no, I've got the book. It's so funny because all the bands, that, and you know, obviously Paul Banks was on the show not long ago. He never saw the movie. None of the bands in the movie saw the movie. Mm. But uh, we kept talking about The Walkman. Such a great band. Incredible. So that sounds like a great lineup. Yeah, they're, they're one of the reasons why I'm a musician. They're fantastic. I think they're incredible live. I think their whole catalog is impressive. I love it. 
Interesting enough, you moved around a lot, but hip-hop was a really big thing for you early on. But also, a lot of those bands that we were talking about from the 2000s, The Strokes, Interpol, The Walkman, they all had a big part in like your musical kind of DNA growing up, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was like, um, it was an incredible time. It was like explosive. There were new bands every week. Um, it was it was a beautiful time to be alive. It was exciting. I was every time I'd go out and club nights, you know, you'd you'd hear new stuff that would, you know, inspire. It was a magic period for me. Yeah, talking about growing up and how music kind of played a role in your growing up in Bristol. Well, you actually didn't grow up in Bristol, but eventually moving to Bristol. And I was twenty four, I think. But um, growing up, I wasn't really interested in guitars at all. I, I grew up on hip hop. I loved hip hop music. Um, it was great. I was very much a tourist within that genre. I grew up in Bristol for a bit and then Devon, and it's all very white working class kind of vibe. Um, but I loved it. My mum uh, pushed soul music onto me from birth, and um, my father was into all sorts of stuff. Um, as an artist, he kind of opened my mind to everything. Um, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful time growing up, uh, being in my own little world, really. It wasn't, um, I wasn't surrounded by people that listened to what I did, but I always had my headphones on. I always listened and, um, I got to an age where the strokes happened. And that was it. And that was it. <laughs> Everywhere, literally that like my generation changed what they wore and what they listened to, that was it. Because before that, really hip-hop was what was that you kind of, you know, you started DJing early on, and that's where you met Dev, right? Yeah, we we start, we kind of came to uni together. I knew him when I was 16, um, in very debauched times. <laughs> what and, was it like? Uh, uh, debauched. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I was, you know, I was a very optimistic, romantic young boy. And uh, and then some things happened to me. Uh, well, they happened to my mum. And uh, it kind of put me in a place where I, I turned to the dark side of drugs and alcohol and violence. And I loved it. Um, but I was very lonely and scared. And then I kind of found my feet a bit in my own language within guitar music, post-punk, and and uh, just, I started, my friend Lucas at a club night, uh, wanted to start a club night, and he asked me if I wanted to DJ, because he knew that I was uh, an avid listener, and I was so passionate about new music. Uh, so I started with Dev, I grabbed Dev, uh, and we did a night called Batcave. Uh, again, very debauched. Were you any good at DJing early on? Or was it just a... Good song selector. Sure. Yeah, but you know, it's that thing, the, the thing you need to learn early on is um, how to create a, an arc where you keep people on the dance floor and you keep them listening and you keep them dancing, which isn't always you playing what you want. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was a good time for, for music because there was so much and it was so good. There was a, there was a breadth of very... You know, you had like Icelandic bands and American, British, uh, French, you know, loads of stuff coming out all the time. Uh, you could play B-sides and album tunes and people would stay on the dance floor. It's not like it is now. 
um, for whatever reason. Uh, not better, just different. Uh, but yeah, it was like, it was amazing. Were you into the alone. bands that were coming out of Bristol at that time? Portishead, Massive Attack, Tricky. Are those artists that you kind of took to early on or not really? Uh, yeah, all three of those. Tricky, uh, definitely. Um, Massive Attack, definitely. And then Portishead a bit later. Because um, I got, like, you know, I was also into like Jungle and Grime and Garage. And they, they were, Trip Hop came from the sound system culture of, of uh, Britain. And, you know, this sound clash thing of different cultures exploding and creating a really strong and caring and brilliant community that just brought sound systems to fields and had free parties. And it was beautiful. And it was a very important part of British culture that wasn't really documented until later on. Um, but Portishead, for me, are one of the most incredible bands definitely in the world. Um, but, yeah, so it, it's all important that that stuff in my life but really at the time it was it, there was no scene for me it was just about everything coming from everywhere were you into the u.s hip-hop because a lot of the hip-hop from the uk like stormzy and tricky it never really translated the streets didn't really translate to the u.s for some reason um well uk hip-hop streets is more garage tricky's trip-hop and um stormzy is grime and much later UK hip hop was amazing, but there was a sense of um, urgency to try and talk about how they weren't from the States. Mm. It was like this kind of, so it was kind of boring. Um, but there's some incredible, like some, I think some of the best MCs, uh, UK. Um, hip hop wise, Chester P, Skinny Man, those two um, were like, for me, really important. Roots Maneuver. Um, there was some great stuff. Um, but really, for me, it was U.S. Yeah, I grew up on American hip hop. Were your mom and dad into music? What did they listen to growing up? Mom was into soul and kind of like, you know, eighties pop and stuff. Yeah. And my my dad likes everything, you know, everything. He's yeah, he loves it all. And at a certain point, you loved Van Morrison's Astro Works. That was a really pivotal record for you too, right? Yeah, yeah. He my my dad put that in my hands when I was about eighteen, um, just because I was getting tired of hip hop for a bit because. It was commercial in a sense where they were just talking about how much money they were. And I was coming from a place of political awareness and understanding that it's like, it was just bizarre to me. Um, it's a different thing in the UK, you know, like if you drive a Ferrari down the street in the UK, everyone's like that. <laughs> right. Everyone here kind of celebrates that sort of thing, yeah. libertarianism or whatever. Um, but that it was a different, it was a different cultural chokehold on the Brits. Um, but yeah, so I just, I think it was just time for something new and he put that in my hands and it changed my life forever, for you, sure. Your dad was an artist. Did you ever think you'd follow in his footsteps? Was that ever a sort of a career path that you thought about? No. No. I, my art is music and design. Um, I do paint, yeah, but he doesn't paint. He's a sculptor. Um, for me, the, like, I did follow in his footsteps. He taught me what it, what creative languages and dedication to finding something you love that speaks of you and empowers you and connects you to the universe you get up in the morning you think about something that's probably what you're supposed to mm. do and it got me out of bed and i found something that saved my life so i'm very grateful for that lesson no question talking about the earliest you went to school for film i believe too right 
well, it, it wasn't a film school or that, but yeah, I studied film and sociology at uni, yeah. How did that have a play in sort of your lyrics and what you were writing early on? Do you think that did? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I studied um, the kind of political awareness within communication and things like race relation, gender, politics and things like that and the, the politics of representation. Um, but, I mean, I don't think too much about the lyrics. I just write them. Mm. But, yeah, I'm aware for sure. So early on you, you, you start DJing, you have the Batcave, and you and Dev sort of decide at a certain point we're going to form this band. You'd never been in a band before. No, sir. There's a great story about you singing into a lampshade, and I think uh, yeah. right, at a hotel room or maybe your apartment or whatever it may be. Yeah, uh, it was Dev, Dev's place, yeah. Like, we were at a gig in Camden, of all places, uh, and it was at a festival called Camden Crawl at the end of the world, and a band were playing, and they were terrible. <laughs> they were like, you know, there were four clothes horses, basically, who looked good and sounded bored, and I hated it. I hate that that aloofness that was contrived. There's there's cool aloof because they own it. It's their, that's their person. Like the strokes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, which is important because that's a currency in creative language. But when you're imitating that and you're just entitled and you haven't earned it by writing incredible music, you should get off the fucking stage, um, in my opinion. Mm. So we left and I said, we're starting a band. And then the next day, well, then, probably not that, because we were probably asleep for a while. <laughs> but a while later, I got him. I just got him out of out of his spot and said, "We're making a band." And then we played "Staring at the Sun" by TV on the radio. Uh, I recently was in a bar in Tokyo with Nick Zinner, and I told him that because he was saying, "How did you start?" And I said that, and he said, "I played guitar on that song." I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? Um, so that was a really, that sounds like a name drop, but I just, it blew my mind. That's like this yeah. full circle. And a lot of things that are happening at the moment seem to be like a cyclical, beautiful, poetic thing where I'm suddenly in a world of people that I looked up to that I'm now able to converse with and learn good? from. Yeah. I wouldn't say peer because that makes me sound like we're equals. I still admire them, and I think that's important. But yeah, it's um, it's just a beautiful thing that I'm going through. While you were doing that, you start throwing these nights, uh, and it's funny you have like the after party for like Johnny Marr and all these artists, but it wasn't really the official after party. <laughs> but you no, would yeah, say that we'd lie. We'd just make flyers saying the official after party, and then a few times people would turn up. Dizzy Rascal turned up. Um, he's a grime MC. Johnny Marr, uh, it was Johnny Marr. It was he, pl he was playing with the Cribs, oh, yeah. who were an incredible great band. Band. Yeah, band. Um, yeah, I mean, we got away with it, but you could, because you could, you still can, you can get away with it. My advice, just do whatever you can. <laughs> and, and how did you support yourself during those first two records? Because everyone had a job during the first two records, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I worked in bars and kitchens. Uh, I ended my working career as a carer for adults with learning difficulties and mental health issues. Um, Bowen was a dental student and then a dentist. Uh, Dev was a bar manager. 
Who else have we got? Lee. Lee was kind of, I don't know what he was doing before. I can't remember, but he ended up teaching at a music school, like doing video work. And then John was a manager of a cafe. Amazing. Mm. Tell me about those early days, like the Golden Lion Pub and, you know, working up to your first record, Brutalism, before, you know, after the EPs, obviously. I mean, yeah, it was it was tricky. I was always uh, up and down with it all, everything. I was a bit of a mess, um, just working or drinking, etc. Um, and we all were really. It was a chaotic time, and we used to get all our stuff, put all our amps and shit in uh, shopping trolleys. Is that what you call them here? Uh, like shopping, shopping carts, maybe. Shopping carts, yeah. yeah, and like push them down the street to the practice room, and then. Uh, practice we did three days a week every sunday for six hours eight hours um every yeah so we were dedicated but messy um and then we just yeah just tried everything out and worked it out bristol's a beautiful place to make mistakes they allow you to they're a loyal loyal greedy audience you know how were some of those first gigs that you played do you, do you have like fond memories of those or are you like uh, are, they were awful on, to you no they weren't awful but like i'm, I'm glad they're not recorded <laughs> <laughs> they probably but, are somewhere we just don't know no 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 this was before all this bullshit yeah um so yeah no nah, um there was like there was a sense that like we knew we were terrible but we were working hard towards something we were f very grateful and like we just put all the hours in, working, 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 just trying to get it done. There were some strange gigs, right? You played like under a church in a crypt, I believe. Some weird gigs like that early on. Yeah, that was uh, with the Naturals, I think, and Coasts or Spectres, maybe. Spectres and Coasts. Um, Spectres are still around in their incredible noise band, yeah. beautiful kind of post-rock noise band. Um, not to be confused with Spectre um specters like the ghosts and coasts who are no longer and what made you kind of working up to your deal partisan what what kind of made you sign with that label because airline you were independent right you really didn't think that you needed a label i think no we knew we needed a label we weren't above that but we weren't waiting around for anyone that's not in our ethos mm. we just kept writing and making and we saved up money and earned money to to record the first two albums joy's act of resistance was paid for by us um, we, what, what we knew we needed was distribution and, uh, someone to carry us through the machine. Mm. Um, but with, with care and grace and empathy and human aspects that are often ignored by, you know, who. So, um, we, we had a few meetings. It was fine. A couple of record labels were interested, but it wasn't quite the right fit. And then Tim... Putnam, head of Partisan, contacted our manager. And um, our manager just knew straight away that he was the one. Were you showcasing or labels were just coming down to the gigs and seeing you? You had a buzz at that point. We had a buzz, yeah. You had a buzz. And Partisan was your choice just because you felt like the ethos of that label kind of fit with the band? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly that. They're perfect. You know, it's that thing. <clears throat> this industry is full of real estate agents, as you call them. Mm -hmm. Estate agents, as I call them. Yeah. And there's a there's a fine line. An album is a house that you've built your entire life and you create something you feel safe in and you make something beautiful that you are proud of, you're happy with, that you've put all the time and energy and money into to make something that you truly feel is you and beautiful. 
And then you allow someone into that house and they start poking around saying, how can I sell this? And that's a delicate thing. And half the time you want to get the fuck out of your house. <laughs> and then now and again, you meet someone who you know speaks your language and will sell your house with care and empathy. And that is something rare. And that is something that I'd find very hard to find in someone outside of partisan records. Mm. They are fucking brilliant. And you mentioned the early days it was violent for you. There was some drugs involved and things like that. The first record was fairly cathartic for you, would you say? Just in the sense of like what you were going through at the time with your family and obviously you mentioned Yeah. Well, you know, it was a it was a it was a a gravestone. Mm. That's what that album was. It was a, it was a big old concrete block with my mum's name on it that helped me get through something and survive it. And then after that it was about recovery. Um, so the catharsis was there, yeah, massively. I, I needed it. Um, it came with uh, vigor. There was no stopping that album because it had to be made, otherwise I would have gone somewhere very dark. Mm. So, yeah, I'm very grateful for that album. Do you ever listen to that record? I know a lot of artists don't listen to their, you know, their early work, but do you listen to it and think, I love the record or I wish I could change something different on this album? Um, I mean, I guess... I've, I, yeah, me and Bowen were driving somewhere like about two years ago, a year ago. We listened to Brutalism together, just because we thought it'd be fun, <laughs> and it was. It was fun. You know, I'm not. You know, an album or a song is like a haircut. You look back on it. If you got the haircut that everyone else has got, you look back at that with embarrassment because it's not you. Mm. But if it's you, then there's no shame. You just look back with joy and go, fuck me, I was lost. <laughs> or fuck me, I was scared. Or I was having a good time. And that was fun. Um, so I'm very happy with everything we've made bar a couple of songs that I, I'd say were my mistake. And I'm happy to say that because I'm here. Yeah. So fuck them. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, no, I, I don't listen back to stuff because I've got stuff to make. I'm not, I listen to, I've been listening to Tank continuously. But well, now it's, it's new and. Well, it's because I need to process it and understand it. And, and then once I get on stage, I can let it go and ignore it and just be the album, be the moment, be in the song, whatever. Um, so now I'm, you know, I'm done with Tank. I've started album number six. Six, yeah. thank you. Does the process change for you? The first record was done almost all live, which is the way I feel like a lot of records should be made. And I think it was like three takes per song or whatever it may be, right? Does that process as you go on in your career, and especially now working with Nigel, does the process of recording change you? It changes, every, it changes every time, yeah. yeah. You, got, you, like, you just There's no right or wrong, mm. and I think you've you got to be a servant to the song. It doesn't matter how you record. Sometimes it should be live. Sometimes it should be, you know, 78 tracks, whatever. It doesn't matter. There's no there's no rules to recording. Any, anyone that says else is full of shit it's a gatekeeping <laughs> nonsense like because you're desperate to to make something sound live so you record it live and then what you end up with is a panicked version you know but sometimes you like record it live and it's magic and you do create that moment but if there's a sense of contrivedness or insecurity to why you're trying to capture it live and make it sound live like we're a live band then what actually is happening is all your insecurities are coming out and you're is like a stranglehold yeah. on what could be a very beautifully displayed piece of music. So 
I would say just going with whatever. And all the best producers uh, are about the process, but that process is about illuminating the person behind the song. There was so many records during the pandemic made over Zoom, and I was like, this is so unrock and roll, like <laughs> sending Zoom files back and forth. But yeah. going back to the first record, I know you started a dialogue with it. You have these amazing fans that are very engaged in the band, and the dialogue is there for you. There's a community with idols. Talk to me about your fans and the community and having that open dialogue. That's one of the reasons I know you were bored when you started the band, but also you wanted this dialogue with the music community too, right? Well, yeah, I wanted to feel what I felt at the best shows. Like I was at a Walkman show and I felt that thing. So I wanted, I wanted that. I didn't want to spend money on seeing people look bored. Mm. That's insanity. Right. And I wanted my money back. So I just started making music because I wanted to feel it and I can. And the way you do that is by giving everything you have to that moment. And it's not like, it's not a dark art. You, mm. just, you just give everything you have. And like anything in life, if you open yourself up to a dialogue that is vulnerable and open, you receive that back. Um, so that's what we did. And I think what came from that was uh, a very open and supportive network of people that are very beautiful, odd, and full of life, which is all I want. I'm very friendly with the singer Ian Asbury from the Cults, and he actually turned me on to Idols early on uh, a couple years ago. And Ian was like, you got to see this band. They're incredible. And having been to a few Idols shows, no one is bored. <laughs> Every, I mean, it's, they're, they're anything but bored. It's an incredible live show. So tell me about like one of my favorite songs, the story behind Never Fight a Man with a Perm. It's one of my favorite songs live and just an incredible song. And the energy behind that song is incredible. Well, I'll write it as kind of an ode to getting my ass kicked. Um, <laughs> was that happening a lot early on to you? Early on, not yeah. not later on. You know, I kind of learned to stick up for myself. But um, yeah, you know, like it's it's a criticism on me being a prick. It's a, it's a song about <laughs> accountability. It's not a criticism on other people. It's about me running my mouth and judging people in a very small town, a bottleneck at one thirty in the morning where everyone is filtered out at the same time, and. Uh, you know, violence in shoes. That's what happens with boredom. Yeah. And uh, a place that didn't really have a sense of identity, I feel, at the time. I'm not blaming it as a place because it's, you know, it has its benefits. It's a beautiful place in some ways. But um, it was a reflection on me being insecure and angry mm. and being like, play silly games, get silly prizes. Well, I guess people are like liquored up. They're coming out of the bars at 12.31. The bars close and there's nothing to do. So you have all this pent-up frustration in a sense, right? Is yeah. that kind of where it stemmed from? Yeah, well, it came from the sense of me kind of just hating that part of where I, at Exeter where I grew up because you just had like a lot of posh upper-middle-class university students Um and then the townies, as you call them then, who are like local people like me. <laughs> and then you had the Marines mm. who were based nearby, who like kicking in teenagers. Um, they can all get fucked. And then uh, everyone in between. But what happens is there's nothing to do after 1.30. Everyone's drunk. 
and there's a lack of uh, love. It's a loveless place at that time in the morning because there's no stimulation other than the drugs. So it just worked out that way, you know? And, no. I, you know, I was, I was just a mouthy little judgmental toe rag. Yeah, although it's interesting. There is a vulnerability to your lyrics and, you know, the other side of masculinity, and I think there's an openness to your lyrics that, you know, if you could talk about that, would be great because I feel like a lot of people don't get to show that in their lyrics, and you do. And that vulnerability is something that a lot of people don't get to see lyrically from a lot of artists. Yeah, well, I guess I, I do it on quite an, an open... It's an open dialect, mm. artistically speaking, which makes it obvious that I am being vulnerable. I think if you're on stage and you're singing, unless you put up the mask of apathy, you are being vulnerable. It's a, you know, you're, you're up there. Mm -hmm. That bravado power, but you're also stood up there dangling in front of 800 to 8,000 people, whatever, eight people. One person, you're still, when you've got a microphone, you are the vulnerable one. It doesn't seem that way to no, people. I agree. But when you write poetry and you put it in front of a song and you sing it, that's a very vulnerable spot. But what I wanted to do and what I learned, I think, from my university years is that form of communication where you seek to use the economy of words to abruptly and succinctly put your message across to allow people to feel like they are part of the conversation and that's what I wanted to do was kind of be astute and not overwilt my language to a point where it's confusing I wanted to put out the necessary and to show my messages acutely and fluently as possible with as little words as possible. So to show my vulnerability, so as to create a sense of vulnerability from the audience. You empower people. What you do is you say, okay, I think I might be wrong here. I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to discussion, that's cool. I, I'm interested in what you have to say in different ways. Saying, I am scared, I am alone, but saying it with violence, saying it with power, it then shows people that, that vulnerability doesn't have to seem meek and quiet and coy or cute. You can be who you are and just be open to that. Open is openness, is to allow a, a, a space where your integrity could collapse. But when you do that, it's a bargaining chip and you're allowing people in, letting love in is an openness. Yeah. The freedom of speech is the act of listening. And that's what I want. I want people to feel that they are safe to be themselves in Idol's arena. Were there times when you're writing lyrics and it was like, this is too personal and I don't want to put this on no. the record? Never. No. You never thought something was too personal to put it out there? No. The only thing I feel that I, 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 I've learned from and things that are important is, is not naming people. It's not it's not their choice to be in my songs. Mm. So I'll sing about whatever the fuck I want, but I'm not going to put anyone else in that unfair chapter, you know? Um, yeah, what what have I got to be scared of? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'll talk, uh, you know, I'll, I'll sing about anything and I'll talk about anything, just not anyone. I think that's unfair. That's true. Talk to me about Crawler 2021, your most transgressive record that you've called. So... Talking about that record and the process of making that record, what it was like for you. 
kind of what inspired the shift in the sound for you too. Yeah, well, we had a lot of time and and space on our hands, you know. Like, um, I, it was you know lockdown, and what came with that was a sense of gratitude. Mm. I've said it many times, but it's it's just how it was. You realize how lucky you are when you don't have all your people fucking dropping dead from a from a virus. You're in a country that has uh, a, a withering, but still a national health service. And don't get it twisted. It's a beautiful thing and it works for everyone in our country. It's just the privatizing and the libertarians and the neoliberals of our right-wing government are selling it off piece by piece with private investment and stealing it from the people. National Health Service works beautifully. What doesn't work is the greed of the fucking fascists who are in charge of our country at the moment. Thank you for listening. Um, so we decided to celebrate our, our luck and our privilege by making something as beautiful as possible. Now, the word brilliant is used too often. A brilliant light is one that is brighter than the rest. To be a brilliant artist, you need to make yourself uncomfortable and find the things that challenge you most. That way you will shine brighter. And with that time and space that we had, we pushed ourselves, that's all we did. We just knew that's, that's how we did it before. When we were working 60 hour weeks, I pushed myself to my limit to make sure that I grieved properly on record. Mm. But now we have more time and more time and more time and more money to make the better records. And when I say better, I mean more accomplished as in making sure that we completed songs and used the right process for each different song and made them the best they could be at the time. Not to say they're perfect, Four out of five will do, thank you, magazines. But, um, you know, uh, we used our potential and we used our privilege for something beautiful. You know, the antithesis of entitlement. I'm not entitled to that luck. I'm not entitled to that money. But I have it, so I'm going to use it. And you got nominated brilliant. for two Grammys, by the way. Um, yeah. Which must have been incredible for you. The Grammys were on last night. I have to say the lack of rock in the Grammys is... Hard to watch because I feel like they were even broadcast before the actual ceremony. It's weird. The categories are not even on TV. Well, I, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Who gives a fuck? Just because I'll tell you why. The best music in the history is not made when they are concerned with gratification. They're not looking for the answers from other people. They're the fucking answer. Mm. It doesn't matter who's on the Grammys. It doesn't matter. There are bands out there now that are as good or better than before. But that doesn't matter if it's being heard because they're still in their fucking rooms making it. True. And that sorts the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. If you wait around to be told you're great, you know, you're, you're not. So when you get two nominations like that, is that something that you feel great about or it doesn't matter to you in a sense? Because it's just It matters award. deeply. It matters deeply because you're you're awarded something. It's an, an acknowledgement. Like it it's um it's ignorant to uh it's ignorant to not appreciate that someone says, We we really like your work. Thank you very much. 
what an award is uh, that's different. You know, I think people, a lot of people get snide about these sorts of things. Like, fuck the awards. I don't need an award. No one needs an award. No, of course not. Um, there's a difference between listening and liking something and a board of people thinking that something is accomplished in certain ways. But something that isn't awarded doesn't mean that it's not fucking magic of course you know yeah so either way it's not it's not important in that sense where we need the gratification if the tank isn't nominated for grammys it doesn't mean that it's not my favorite and best album i'm going to keep making music whether people are listening or not so it's fine <laughs> um but yeah going to an awards ceremony and shout out to killer mike congratulations yeah. on your free awards yeah, um but yeah no like it's it's a weird one, isn't it? Like, you know, my kid's not winning any awards. Yeah, she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. So, you know, like, music is the magic and the connection of people to the universe. It's this bridge between existence and the existed. And like, there are boards and board members that want to just highlight that certain things are beautiful and it doesn't mean that everything that isn't highlighted isn't. It's just up to you. I feel like a lot of it's political too now when you watch the Grammys. So much of it is not even about music. It's about did we fit a quota? You know, I don't even feel like it's always about who's the best and, you know, which records are the best. But Unless we're nominated and then it is <laughs> right. to do with who's the best. Yeah, That's true. Talking about the Sawyer behind Car Crash, uh, one of my favorite songs on that record, it's actually about uh, a terrifying experience that happened to you in a car crash, right? In a car accident that happened? Kind of. I was in a car crash, yeah. I wrote, wrote a car off, smashed it into a lamppost 60 miles an hour. Uh, but it's, it's kind of about... I wrote that. It's my, it was at the start of, like, I wanted to get into storytelling in songs. I didn't really do it before. Mm. People think I tell stories. What I do is I make up a song based on lots of different vignettes or small stories of things that have happened to me and I make it one mush, right? Um, car crash was an analogy for recovery. But yes, the, the idea of Crawler came from me coming out of a car crash. The whole album came from that car crash. Or that whole album came from me learning about that, that car crash years later. And I called up Tim from Partisan straight away, like, I've got, I know what it is. You know, I know what this album's going to be now. Um, but yeah, Car Crash is a song that's the, like, the, it's supposed to be like me figuring it out, you know, working out storytelling, like, like you know, like Nick Cave, Stagger Lee storytelling kind of thing where, you know, that, he's not Stagger Lee, yeah. but it's about that using that story as a, a beautiful, violent tool to make an allegory for what you're trying to say of everything that's happening. That was like the, the linchpin of that. So um, what actually happened at the car crash? It was just, it was like you walked away out of it or you were in the hospital? What was? No, 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 I was, I was unscathed. I, I, I got away with it, man. But the car was like Total. squished in half. Yeah. yeah, wow, incredible. Let's talk about your new record. I think you were, one of the goals of this record you were saying was to make people dance. You got to work with LCD Sound System, James Murphy. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the video is great. Great dancer, by the way. <laughs> so, Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk to me about the new record and work with Nigel Godrich, who's worked with Radiohead, amongst other bands, and Tom York, and work with James Murphy. Did you work with James in the studio? Or was that kind of you sending the song yeah. back and forth? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, 
James Murphy and Nancy Wang were later. So like, we, we'd already recorded the album when, when that happened. Nigel gave us a call saying that the backing vocals on Dancer were shit because they were. <laughs> because I wrote the song with kind of LCD vocals in mind. Mm. The, the, I wrote the harmony and the melody thinking of James Murphy, Nancy, uh, Frank Black, Kim, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, like that idea of uh, loud falsetto, lackluster harmony. Um, but Bowen and Lee, they're, they're doing a good job now, yeah. but it's kind of too late. They should have practiced before <laughs> the studio. Uh, but it was rubbish. It was terrible in the studio. But we recorded that as what you call a scratch vocal, which means that it's, you lay it down and then you do it better later. Go away and practice. But we forgot, basically. That's what happened. <laughs> you kept it in. It was a turbulent time. Uh, and it was a turbulent time because we turned up to the studio with 17 parts, drums, like, you know, drums and bass for a verse. And then I had an idea where the chorus would go, but no chorus or a chorus or fucking. So it's 17 of those and nothing. I had no vocals, not a zip, nothing. So we just kind of came in slightly panicked, full of coffee, see what happens. And uh, the rest is tank. But yeah, it was, it was, a, it was progress from Crawler. We knew our direction now. Um, we we recorded from the basement with Nigel Godrich, which is a live show. If you haven't seen it, watch it. It's great. Yeah, some of the best live performances in the history no of music question. is on that. <laughs> the white denim one is incredible. Radiohead, all of those, yeah. obviously, is the best. And yours is great, too. Yeah, I've, yeah, I'd say ours is... Speaking from someone who wasn't there. 4.8 out of 10, <laughs> Frank's Magazines. Um, but yeah, fuck the king. It was great. Um, and then what next? Yeah, so we... Had you known Nigel? Or no, you no, just... no, 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 no. I mean, we we were, we were different worlds. Yeah. And there's a sense of like, you know, we came in, recorded. He never heard us. He just heard uh, his engineer, Miko, who worked with us on the album. He's incredible. He was like, mm. I really think you should work with idols and get them into this thing. They're great live. I think he'd seen us live. Anyway, so we got in, did from the basement. Nigel made, made us sound more like idols than we had done before. Mm. So we are like, this is interesting. We should, Miko is pushing to do an album with us, I think. That's what Bone thinks. Um, Were you a fan of the records he did with Radiohead? Of did course, yeah. they're the best yeah. band Some in the, of the world. Best in the world. I love it. Yeah. Um, so we were like, yeah, I don't, know. I don't think he's going to be interested. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll give it a try. Yeah. Maybe get him drunk, see what happens. And um, yeah, and he did. So it was great. And then, um, and then we spent a lot of time in London in his studio, me kind of panicking and, and feeling very like a fish out of water, really, because it was a new writing experience. Completely, just me and Bowen. Normally, it's the five of us write together, very live. And I just didn't know what to do with my hands. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like, uh, and uh, but my my version at the time, less so now through therapy. But at the time when I'm scared. And vulnerable, I get angry, mm. I get defensive, I put my put my chest out, grip my teeth, which isn't nice to be around. I'm, I'm an unpleasant and scary man. Sometimes I wouldn't want to fight you. That. <laughs> um, I mean, it depends, doesn't yeah. it? Like, you might, you might do. <laughs> depends Wait. what I say, right? Um, everyone's capable of fighting. They just gotta, you got to say the right thing to yeah. them. Um, but yeah, so like, I mean, more like on a tantrumy. Yeah. I, I can be a real 
bitch sometimes. Yeah. So I, it's, I just, I was, I was not nice to be around sometimes in that process because I was just trying to figure it out and felt like I was being left behind and then figured it out because I realized that all I needed to do was let Nigel and Bowen and Kenny carry me. I'd written a bunch of music, written stuff in the studio. I was playing, you know, Grace I wrote and things like that. So it wasn't like I wasn't writing music, but I think I was scared that Nigel was pushing us in a, in a new direction, up, more accomplished, more considered, more brilliant. And I was like, is this too much for me? Am I gonna be able to sing on this album and do it justice? These things were going through my head, really. And that made me become angry <laughs> at myself. And then I project that bullshit out, not much, but a little bit, and that's enough for people. That Bowen was ready to quit, Nigel was ready to quit. And then we because wrote. Nigel was so hard to work with, they just no, couldn't. No, no, just, no, no. I'm so hard. To, I'm saying right. I was the one oh, who's hard to work. Right. They were not hard yeah. to work with at all. Um, and then I, I realized that I was pushing them too far, so I apologized to both of them, and I sat down and I listened, and then the rest is history. It was beautiful. And you brought in Kenny Beats at some point, and he worked on Kenny directing. was uh, Kenny was there the whole time. He just was away, being Kenny Beats, busy man. Yeah. So we had him for the recording. And we were, you know, talking to him a lot, um, but we'd worked with him on, he produced Crawler. So he, you know, we were, we knew, we, he's, he's the most dynamic person I've met in terms of work, m music. He can make the person behind any song and music happen in that record. I can guarantee you that he can work with anyone and make them better or more them in the moment, if you allow the moment but you got to allow the moment. So how does that process differ working with Nigel and Kenny versus your first record? Is it a totally different process for you? Are you taking yes. the songs apart? Like It's completely different, yeah. but that, that's because we're different people. Yeah. I mean, I can't even begin to think about why. I mean, fuck me. I was, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. None of us did really. Yeah. Um, but we had a great producer on the first record and the second record. And, but we were just trying to figure it all out, you know. Um, we're still trying to, and this is this is why Tank's so successful is because we all went in knowing we were figuring it out, and that's that's everyone's students until they think they're teachers and then they're failing. I love that. The theme of this record is love, right? Yeah. So talk to me about that. The theme is love. <laughs> that's all it is. What well, it's uncomplicated, and that's what I wanted with this thing. I think we're in a time of real dismay. I think, you know, politically, um, is a a very disturbing time. There's a genocide going on at the hands of our government and yours, um, or at least we are part of it. And um, it's just on my mind at the moment. But before that happened, I mean, not before that happened, during when that happened, um, our government had completely dismantled our country through lies and it's documented lies mm. and it's all documented now it's out in the open there's think tanks that have funded lies that have created a narrative in our country based on fear of the un the imagined they do not exist they the people that are being blamed for the unimaginable dismantling of the poor and our public services is all down to 
the conservative government of our country lying in order to gain money from private investment. And now it's all out, but no one seems to know. But this whole time since the coalition in our country, which happened a long time ago, it's just been a fucking mad, crazy ride to see it all unfold. And like now we're like not part of the European Union. We have fascists rising all over Europe and the US. And um, it's confusing. So I've always had things to write about. But every album, when I write about it, it's about polit political language and politics is about the infrastructure and the structuring of human welfare. That is the housing, the feeding, the medicating, mm. the, the care and the sanitation of every human being in that country. And there's different schools of thought on how to look after everyone. Mm. And um, I think as an artist, I've just wanted to use love, which is, as Bell Hook says, is a verb. It's not an abstract noun. It's a thing you work at. And I want love to be my message because I think that if I talk enough about love, a few people may allow that in and allow it into the conversation around humanism and equality and empathy and grace and kindness and, and commitment and honesty and community, communion, and all the things that if you allow those things in truly, you're not going to vote right. Mm. You're going to want for a different future. And it ain't this one because it ain't working. Oh, I agree. Not for the poor. Yeah. Not for the fucking huge percentage of people that are being neglected in both of our countries. So, I mean, that being said, it's not just, a, it's not a political vehicle. Our music is just me wanting to connect to the universe. Where does the title come from? Because it's a tricky spelling, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't really <laughs> care if it is or not. Just meaning like, what's the yeah. meaning behind the title? No, yeah, so. I, I get it. It's just me being facetious, really. I mean, yeah, it's a fucking word, isn't it? Yeah. No, what it is, is I wanted to own it. I wanted it to be mine. It means Tank is the album. I wanted to coin it so that it's just, that is the album. Tank's the album. There's no connotation that's just dragging people through the mud into trying to think about what it means. It means it's a love album. It's a album of love and it's idols and it's mine and we're looking forward to it thank <laughs> you yeah me too has the dynamic of the band changed so the last 15 years it must have changed a lot for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah in a good Usually. way a bad way what do you guys all get along great now we're still here man still here <laughs> yeah. you know, like, how's it changed though for you it has to change every band it changes and yeah morse and massively yeah um we know our roles you know that's if you if you go in delicately over time, and you like when I say delicately, we were kind of fortunate in that we had a very slow curve of success mm. monetarily, audience wise. You know, for anyone listening, um, success is basically now two things record sales, ticket sales. 
obviously artistically success if you're making it you're making it that's it in my opinion i've always felt successful before we had big audiences before we had money coming in i felt successful i didn't get upset about people telling me like when are you getting a real job and all that shit because i was like i just laughed at them i was like i'm winning <laughs> yeah. i wake up in the morning excited about my work i'm thinking about my work whilst working my job i'm excited to finish work and finish that song you know, that's a beautiful thing to be empowered and to have a fuel that gets you out of bed in the morning and puts you through and you're excited for the next day, you're excited for the end of the day, you're excited for fucking lunch break. I've always been that way. I'm lucky and I'm fortunate. Um, so, I mean, I'd, our dynamic is that I've always been a cheerleader and I mean that. I've been a vigorous cheerleader for, for working hard for something that you love. And I want to put that out to the world and make other people feel empowered to be themselves and enjoy their own skin and have fun and work towards something they love. But I had to do that with a band a lot because I was very hard work and very hard to be around. I used to be hard to be around. I'm less so now. <laughs> um, and that's a lot to do with being a father, I think. But it was about bringing them through and dragging them through. Don't, don't pay attention to your peers. Ignore everyone else's successes or demises or criticisms or learn from your own mistakes and just keep your head down and work hard for what you love and you'll get there. And I think there's a lot of things that happen. Our slow rise meant that we could make lots of mistakes and learn from them. You know, if we were thrust into a major record deal, record label deal and we were like, we would have fucking collapsed because of many reasons, addiction, emotional immaturity, no infrastructure in the band that we understood. We had to learn our roles slowly and what mm. we're good at and what we're bad at. When to be a passenger, when to be a driver. That's as simple as it gets. That's what a workplace is. Everyone knowing where to, where to be and how to, how to play that role well. And like, we had to do that because we're a business. It's just a very slow curve of success. So now we're there, um, you know, it's just about going forward with empathy and just knowing that, yeah, well, he's, he's, he, he takes longer to learn that than I do. Yeah. So, and, and Byron does the same with me and I do the same with Dev. And we listen and we, you know, like, we're more like brothers now than we were friends and we're employees and when this ends we'll be brothers and friends again but until that we're employees and brothers friends is like friends is something you don't want to teeter around yeah. with because there's a sense that a brother you can lose friends but i have an unconditional love for those four it's unconditional and you can see it I think so. Yeah, I no mean, question. sometimes you probably can't see it. <laughs> yeah, you, well, I'm not with you all the time. No, no, no. no I I, what see, I mean so. is that sometimes it doesn't look like we love each other. <laughs> right. But it's unconditional. And but that push and pull is what makes all that interesting. If you look back at some of the greatest yeah. music, I mean, the Gallagher brothers, right? They fucking hated <laughs> yeah. each other. But yeah, at yeah, the end yeah. of the day, the art they created was amazing. Yeah, because you know what? That that's that. If you see it, it means you're seeing the humans behind the music. Yeah, it's that per, that the magic of personality coming out in the art Definitely. if you if you 
hide that, you know, like some K-pop band or, you know, right. or boy band or girl band or fucking right. where the PR machine hides, you know, and obviously they don't write the music, then you don't see that. And it's like, you know, that's different. That's a fucking, they're just basically a sofa advert, yeah. aren't they? Who gives a fuck. <laughs> but yeah, the, the push and pull is every relationship you've ever had. And that's what Bell Hooks, Hooks is talking about. For, for a beautiful love to prevail takes work because every, like life is a very dynamic force that changes every day. Mm. And you got to work at that. You are not the same person you were last week. Neither are they, whoever they are, <laughs> that you love. They're not. And if you try and keep them that way, then it's not love. That's true. Talk to me about the tour coming up. One of the bands you toured with uh, a long time ago, the Foo Fighters, you have this Who? great, <laughs> you have this great <laughs> relationship with Dave Grohl. I think you sent him like a jigsaw puzzle to yeah. initially get in touch with him. So tell me that story. Yeah. Um, uh, shout out to Joe Hat of Spectres. He, he did something similar, but very different and dark. Um, <clears throat> but uh, we got offered... No, we didn't get offered. We we got we were told that we could put ourselves on a list of people to support Foo Fighters. I knew the economy of that. I knew how important that show would be. Is that a pay for play thing when you say you put yourself on a list? No, not pay to play. They're not. They're not like that. Foo yeah. Fighters. No, they're yeah. they're an incredibly generous and um, what's the word? Propulsive bands. You mm. know, they 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 want to elevate yeah. the people around them. Support, I'm talking yeah. about the tour crew. Everyone loves working for them. And, you know, I was there, you know, the day, I don't wanna, no, I was there on tour with them just before Taylor Hawkins died. And I, I watched side of stage on, on their last show together with Taylor, Taylor's best friend stood next to me from childhood. You know, that's wow. the connections they have with the people. Yeah. They, they treated us like we weren't just some small support band from Bristol given an opportunity by a huge band, you know? They treated us with respect as fellow musicians. That's priceless. And that goes deep within the roots of any band, exactly the same as LCD Sound System. They treated us like peers and they treated us like people and family and watching their touring unit and how they treat each other and all their, all their crew. It's not their staff, it's their people and they treat each other with respect. And it's a beautiful thing to see when it's done well. And that is longevity in the touring game, FYI, is about, it's about learning to respect the craft. And that is everyone in the team and everyone that sets up that stage and the security staff and the catering staff and the cleaners and the people that fucking let people through the gates. It's all part of the process and they all represent the magic of your show. So if someone's fucking rude in the box office, that person's night's already started. Mm. So for me, you learn from people like LCD Sound System and Foo Fighters because they treat everyone with love and respect. It trickles through and like, you know. So you sent David Jigsaw Puzzle. You're like, let me... Sorry, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I had a coffee earlier. <laughs> yeah. So... He fucking, they, they put out a thing, said apply or whatever. It was like, I guess it's just like a normal agency thing when you just put yourselves forward. Yeah. I don't know. I don't deal with that shit. Um, and our manager calls and I immediately thought of the idea. I don't know why. It just came in my head. We were, on, we were traveling in our van somewhere. 
And I was like, what we'll, what we'll do is we'll get a jigsaw puzzle and we'll take a photo of Dev in his underwear <laughs> and saying pick idols. And then we'll get that turned into a jigsaw puzzle, send it to them, cover up the box so they don't know what the puzzle is. So they have to make the puzzle. Fairly brilliant. That's the point. <laughs> yeah. If you just send them the box with it on, it's like, oh, yeah. great, funny. But the fact that someone had to build it fills with me with joy. Was it Dave building it? We don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I, <laughs> I mean, he's a good guy, but I don't think he's like, do you know what I mean? Um, but I don't know. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you that. But yeah, so they obviously, I, as soon as I thought the idea, Bowen was like, we're getting picked. That's happening. Yeah. We knew it. It worked. It's a smart thing. Also, yeah, we, we, had, we had good songs out. Um, so yeah, if you know, that's all it takes is a bit of originality and um, forthright. You end up becoming friends with him, right? He gave you like a piggyback ride. You guys like really bonded, gave, I think. Was it me? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I had a bet. I made a bet. I was like, I bet you I can get on Dave Grohl's back. <laughs> and they thought I'd just like rodeo him or something. But I'm not fucking rodeoing Dave Grohl. <laughs> he's, a, he's a nice guy. He's a big guy. Nicest so, guy in rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I jumped on his back and won 20 quid. Amazing. Well, the record's coming out soon. I think it comes out in like a week or so. Tang. So definitely pick up the record. There's a tour coming up too. Apparently so. <laughs> you excited for the tour? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Starts in March. I, I mean, it's why I'm in a band, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we do this really fun thing at the end of the show, these top five lists. I think you're a film buff, if I'm correct, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to ask your top five films of all time. Cry Kid, Dirty Dancing, Wonder Boys. Number two. We're on number two. Oh, is it, are we going five to one? Yeah, five to one. I wouldn't say it's in that order. It could be of all time, so it doesn't have yeah, to be now. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. could be I mean, any of all film. time, probably Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing. Yeah, just because it takes me to a very beautiful afternoon and evening when I was about eight. I'll come back to number one. I'll think of it. Okay. Uh, I also wanted to ask you top five most underrated British rock bands. The Cribs. Number five. Um, number four. I was going to say, no, they're not British. They're Irish. Fuck the king. But the Cribs is a great choice at number five. Yeah, I think they're, they're the one of the most underrated bands yeah. uh, of all time. And they didn't really break big in America, but they should have been bigger here for sure. Yeah. Uh, Crows. Number four. Life. Number three. Giant Swan. Number two. And the number one most underrated British rock band, Jeff Talbot. Idols. You can put yourself on the list because, you know, I don't think you're underrated. I think you're amazing, but we'll put you on the list. <laughs> um, yeah, fuck the king. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I know, like, oh, there's probably someone I'm missing that I really love. Well, the number one movie, do you have a time to think about what your number one film would be? Uh, come to mind? Oh, I forgot it. Cause I forgot because <laughs> I was sort of thinking. Uh, I'll go with John for number one, underrated. The five to one, it's all the same. I don't yeah. do better or worse yeah. those top five john john j-o-h-n okay um haven't yeah, seen it they're two-piece amazing crows are an incredible band life are an incredible band giants one are a two-piece kind of guitar pedal synth annihilation pack and then um the cribs are fundamental to british sensibilities in music wasn't johnny Mar in the cribs am i mistaken he was for a bit yeah. he was for a bit okay yeah um yeah and last but not least you guys have a lot of different uh are you a big foodie by any chance do you love food 
Oh, no, no, no. I am, <laughs> You're a big well, foodie. I, have, I love food very, very much. It's like my love language. So the top five foods that we don't have in America, starting with number five. Because <laughs> <laughs> you guys have a whole different thing going over there. Beans on toast or yeah, whatever. Yeah, we have food maybe. everywhere else. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Because, um, I, I mean, best food in the world is in New York, I yeah. think. Um, all right. Well, we could you do your top have. five favorite foods in New York, but I feel like... Ah, that's boring. Yeah, that's boring. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking 9,000 yeah. lists that. Just <laughs> yeah. go on Instagram. Um, all right. Foods that you don't have here. Yeah. All right. Beans on toast. That's my death row dinner. Is that number one for you? Yes. Okay. Uh, but it has like cheddar cheese grated on top. British cheddar cheese, not your cheddar cheese. Um, number two. It's, I mean, it's it's different now because there's it's like, I'm going to think outside of New York because yeah. like, everything I'm thinking of is like, you've got it here. It's well, yeah, because like sticky toffee pudding is like in every restaurant in New York. But. Yeah, but I doubt whether it's as... Uh, no, Although we don't really, the there's not a lot of spotted dick here, but there is no, things... rubbish. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Bread and butter pudding. Number two. That is actually also on my Desert Island disc. Um I was talking about getting Will Dare to do a bread and butter pudding donut with, with creme patisse in the middle. I need that. And a sasakaya glaze. I don't know what that is, but I need Sasakaya's that. Sasakaya is like a raisiny red wine. Because mm. there's raisins in bread and butter pudding, but I'm not a massive fan of it. Okay. But it works. But I was thinking if you just did a glaze on top of the donut, made like a red wine yeah. reduced. Whatever that is, I want that. <laughs> Number um, three. Uh, ramen. I mean, yeah. you have some of my favorite ramen in the world, but it's not American, I guess. But you have it here. All right, let me think. Ah, oh, okay. Hobnob biscuits, chocolate hobnobs. We definitely do not have that here. Fuck. <laughs> it's the best. It's the best biscuit in the world, hands down. Um, okay, we got two more, four and five. Ribena. What is Ribena? Ribena is a drink, but I'm going to have it because it's <laughs> fucking incredible. Okay. Um, is it like a beer? What is it exactly? No, Ribena is a blackcurrant cordial. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's the shit. It's so good. It's Amazing. Like a beautifully balanced blackcurrant cordial. It's so good. I'll try it. Number five. Do you know what? Scrap that. What? Fuck Ribena. <laughs> Chocomel. Chocomel is a chocolate milk. That could be um, number five, by the way. Chocomel. No, 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 because okay. I've got number five. That. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Let's scrap that. Um, Ribena's inspired me for the, the adult edition, which is number five. <laughs> Chocomel is chocolate milk. You don't have chocolate milk here, by the way. <laughs> I mean, we have like Nestle's. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's probably not that's milk, yeah. bro, yeah. and that's definitely <laughs> not chocolate. I don't know. I, I sound like a real stuck-up <laughs> prick, and I'm talking to you like a prick. I apologize. I don't class that as chocolate milk, but yeah. thank you for yeah. your suggestion. No uh, also, fuck Nestle. <laughs> um, yeah, no, chocomel is a beautiful um, European chocolate milk. They're Dutch. Just Dutch. It's from the Netherlands who are um, going through some really hard times right now with the fascist cunts um, and their Nazi, Nazi salutes. So um, I just want to shout out to um, all the anti-fascists in the Netherlands. Love and chocolate milk forever. <laughs> uh, number five, Buckfast Abbey tonic wine. We do not have that here. <laughs> no, you, it's a good thing too, because your country will crumble. It's a fucking absolute beautiful alcoholic caffeinated drink made by benedictine monks wow and you can only it's, it's I'll have tiny to come to london to get that because i'm not getting that here uh yeah i mean do you know what don't go to london and drink it go to glasgow mm. 
uh, in Scotland and drink it there. That's their second favourite drink after Iron Brew. Scotland being one of the only countries where Coca-Cola isn't number one drink. Iron Brew is. Interesting. Yeah. And last but not least, because we kind of didn't really get this. Your number one film, did you have a thought about what that would be in the number one spot? Or, or maybe it's Dirty Dancing. I don't know. I feel like we'd left one out. Yeah, we have. We <laughs> so have. Oh, the... I, do you know what I watched recently again? Lion. Lion, which means French, it's French for hate. Uh, and it's a, a film about the Parisian rights in Les Bonnieux, which is a housing project, um, about three protagonists um, that basically escape the riots. And then it's the, the cyclical story um, about the journey of that night beautifully filmed it's just it it's a very cliched thing for a british film student to say lion especially in the like <laughs> 2000s but i rewatched it recently because i was um this brand i think scrt skirt or whatever you call them um they did like a pack a while ago like a like a clothing sure, drop yeah. yeah with like but the artwork's incredible and the cinematography's second to none so like it's all in line with that and i was like actually it's like it's one of the best films ever made, and it's been on my mind because, I mean, there's just a lot of strife going on. The guy that they, the, the guy that basically was one of the reasons why the right were rising in France, La Pen, he's a horrible fascistic leader. His granddaughter is now on the rise, or mm. was on the rise in France, and. Macron and it's it's all a mess and um it's like shit hasn't changed it's just different decades but a brilliant film I watch um, it I always uh, learn things when we do these lists so yeah Vincent Cassel is the main guy oh, sure. in it, uh, who's sure of course you know, um but yeah yeah the, fuck it yeah those are my five <laughs> awesome but uh, either way go check out Joe Tabin and the boys on tour the new record is coming out any day now I think it comes out like February 16th February 16th all right and if you're in New York, two gigs coming up. This show will come out in a couple of weeks. So, so we're, we're playing Barry Boring <laughs> tomorrow night, which is sold out. And yeah. we're playing Forest Hills on the 27th of September. Awesome. Joe, this is a pleasure. We'll have to do part two and we'll do a whole nother list. Appreciate it, my brother. Know, like, honestly, I'm, I, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm missing loads of great bands. <laughs> you know, there's like a time when there's like loads of great bands yeah. that were like coming out. Um, but yeah, no, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's great. And it's a pleasure. Fuck the king. And I'll come to the next show because I'm missing tomorrow, but the next show I'm definitely there. Yeah, Forest Hills. I'm See there. you there, I'm sir. There. Awesome. Thanks very much Appreciate for having it. Me. Thanks for listening to Lip Service with Scott Lips. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to today's episode of Lip Service. And, of course, a very special thank you to Joe for joining me. Be sure to follow Idols on social media. Follow the show by following Lip Service on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, and by downloading the show on your favorite podcast platform. Some of the biggest names in rock and pop music will be joining us in the near future, so keep an eye out for upcoming episodes. And as always, let us know who you'd like to see on the show in the comments section. I'm your host, Scott Lips, and thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Lip Service.